Imagine volunteering to fight for your country while your family members back home are sent to live and work in internment camps. It's difficult to imagine this atrocity taking place in a recent American history, but unfortunately, this was the harsh truth for many Japanese Americans during World War II. Maya Angelou once said, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. Our program tonight features New York Times bestselling author, Daniel James Brown on his new book, Facing the Mountain, in conversation with Densho Executive Director, Tom Ikeda. They help make sure this history is not forgotten and thus not lived again. Good evening and welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Copies of Daniel's book, Facing the Mountain, along with signed book plates, are included with, with registration for tonight's webinar. If you would like to purchase an additional copy of Facing the Mountain, please visit the DMA, DMA's online store at shop.dma.org. I'd like to thank our partner for tonight's event, the Dallas Museum of Arts, Arts and Letters Live. We always enjoy partnering with them and look forward to doing so again soon. Additionally, I want to recognize the Japan America Society of Dallas-Fort Worth for their promotional partnership. The Council has a full schedule of virtual programs, so remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. Now, I'd like to welcome a good friend of the Council's, Carolyn Bess, to introduce our speakers for tonight's conversation. Caroline, Carolyn is the Director of Arts and Letters Live, the Literary and Performing Arts Series at the Dallas Museum of Art, where she has worked for 24 years. Carolyn, thank you for your partnership and your friendship, and with that, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you, Liz. Arts and Letters Live is delighted to join forces with the World Affairs Council tonight on this special event. I'd like to thank supporters of Arts and Letters Live and the World Affairs Council for your continued generosity to both of our organizations this year. Arts and Letters Live's 30th season kickoff and virtual programs are presented by PNC and major support is provided by the Hirsch Foundation. Now it's my pleasure to introduce and welcome Daniel James Brown in conversation with Tom Ikeda. Dan grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and taught writing at San Jose State University and Stanford before becoming a writer and editor. He now writes narrative nonfiction books full-time and says he enjoys bringing compelling historical events to life as vividly and accurately as possible. Dan last appeared at Arts and Letters Live about five years ago, and that night stands out in my mind as a truly epic gathering of more than 600 people when he shared insights about his book, The Boys in the Boat, which spent over two and a half years on the New York Times bestseller list, and it's now in the process of being adapted as a major motion picture. Dan's latest book and the focus, of course, of tonight's conversation is Facing the Mountain, a gripping World War II saga of patriotism and courage. It uncovers the seldom told story of an army unit almost entirely made up of second generation Japanese Americans and the growing animosity toward Japanese Americans that followed the attack on Pearl Harbor. Author Timothy Egan praises the book by saying, quote, Daniel James Brown has done it again. 
his rich, nuanced recreation of the dark years when thousands of our fellow citizens were incarcerated because of their ancestry is a must-read contribution to the history of the 20th century." End quote. Dan met our moderator tonight, Tom Ikeda, a little over five years ago at an awards ceremony where they were both being recognized. Their friendship, collaboration, and collective passion for unearthing stories from Japanese-American history has borne fruit with this book, and Tom wrote the foreword for it. Tom has been the founder and executive director of Den Show for 25 years, a Seattle-based nonprofit dedicated to collecting, preserving, and sharing Japanese-American history and promoting social justice and equity. Tom says that this book will open hearts and its lessons have never been more relevant than now. Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month carries emotional heft this year and many of our local organizations among the ones presenting tonight are holding space for healing, commemoration, and dialogue. We'll kick off the evening tonight with a short video that powerfully and artistically introduces Facing the Mountain, and it was created by Tom's daughter, Tani Ikeda. After it finishes, we'll join Dan and Tom live in Seattle for their conversation. Many thanks for joining us. By and large, they had grown up like other American boys. Baseball and football, they made plans to go to college or work in the family business or run the farm someday. It seemed as if the whole world lay before them. But within hours of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, all that changed. Within days, the FBI was banging on their doors. Within weeks, many of them would watch as their immigrant parents were forced to sell their homes. Within months, tens of thousands of them would be living in barracks behind barbed wire. This is the story of those young men, resisting, rising up, standing on principle, laying down their lives, enduring and prevailing. Penguin Random House presents Facing the Mountain, a true story of Japanese-American heroes in World War II by Daniel James Brown, read for you by Louis Ozawa. Thank you, Carolyn, for those for the introduction and, and for showing that, that video. Yeah, before we start, Dan, I just want to tell you a quick story. I mean, about five months ago, um, you know, you sent me an advanced reader's copy. And uh, and so I read that with Tani. You know, we, we actually read it to each other out loud. And I just want to, because I know you have daughters too. And, and, you know, Tani's, you know, 34. And it was just one of those bonding experiences for, for us to read the story. And she could see how moved I was at, at certain parts. And it was just a great chance to explain the history. So I just wanted to, yeah. and, and that's one of the reasons why she wanted to do that, that book trailer. And I, and I love that trailer. That's a, just a <laughs> wonderfully creative and powerful way into, the, into what we're gonna do tonight, I think. Yeah, and I just wanna let you know, people in the audience know that, um, so you know, Dan and I are, are together and it's, it's so much fun to actually sit in the same room after all the Zoom meetings we've done. Um, but I just want to let people know that we've both been vaccinated, and uh, and so we're you know we're, we don't have to socially distance right now. Um, 
But, you know, Dan, I want to just, just start. I mean, Carolyn mentioned um, how we met, you know, a little over five years ago at an awards uh, ceremony. <clears throat> I just want to kind of start there because, um, you know, as Carolyn um, mentioned earlier, you wrote the book, The Boys in the Boat. And I had um, you know, read the book and I was actually really um, excited to meet you because you were being honored you know, for the boys in the boat. You know, the mayor of Seattle was going to give you an award. And um, you know, that book was, was just so powerful in terms of, and I think a lot of the audience probably has read it also, but just your ability to tell such a powerful story with real history. And I remember when I was there getting an award for Den Show because I was you know, collecting and sharing the Japanese American stories. And we were actually sitting about this close to each other on stage. And we started talking about Japanese American history. And I remember you, you were genuinely interested in Japanese American history and the stories. Tell me what it was like for your perspective. Yeah, I mean, this book was really born out of, out of meeting you that, that day. You know, as I sat there listening to you explain what you've done collecting all these oral histories over 25 years now. Um, I just was intrigued. I've always been interested in Japanese American history for a variety of reasons, but um, I went home and I think it was that night, I started looking at um, some of the clips, some of the interviews you've done over the years. And I spent the next several days just looking at dozens and dozens of these um, video recorded oral history. Oh, I remember that because you sent me emails every once in a while and I would you know, send you maybe, oh, check out this story or check yeah. out that story. Because... Exactly, exactly. And you know, as I did that, I, I fell into them and I'm a person that's all about story. Story is what really gets me going. And so many of these were really interesting, compelling stories. They were obviously all about um, Japanese Americans, but they were also um, the kinds of stories that I'm that I'm drawn to. A lot of them were about earnest young Americans um, confronting difficult times in the 1940s um, and having to overcome the, this, the sets of obstacles that were presented to them and doing them, just doing so just through sheer force of will. Um, there really was a, actually there was kind of a resonance for me with the boys in the boat story. I mean, obviously it's very different in many ways, but there, the core similarity is that um, I saw in those stories, the same sort of um, struggle that ordinary Americans were going through and the same sorts of values and attitudes that, um, that rose to meet those challenges and overcome them. So, you know, over the course, as you know, of the next couple of years, I gradually whittled it down to a smaller number of people and began to, to develop what turned into this book. Yeah, I mean, you know, people have asked me because you know, we've had actually hundreds of you know, authors, um, filmmakers, uh, podcasters, um, educators who have come to Densho and I've talked to them about you know, wanting to use materials to create something. And you know, people have noticed I spent a lot more time with you and, and, the, and the question is you know, why? And part of this was, you know, I, I know the story so well because I, I almost come from it like from a micro standpoint. You know, I've done over 250 oral histories and sometimes I get buried in the detail. And it was interesting talking to you because you would talk about, you know, these, these broader themes that you saw that were coming out. And I remember just being intrigued with the, the discussions, but I also thought, okay, so how is he gonna do this? There, I, you know, I, when we were talking, I said, you asked me, is there one person, one family that you could focus on? And I said, no, I think it's going to take at least a dozen. And uh, 
and you and you did you you're able to will it down to at least four right and and so talk about that process how did you tell this very complicated story with only four four main um, people yeah so i mean 12 just wouldn't have worked it's 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 too unwieldy to try to tell a story with 12 protagonists it, and so i needed a smaller number what I finally settled on was I, I came to the realization that um, young Japanese American men of draft age, Nisei men, uh, right after the attack on Pearl Harbor, they faced this, they all faced a single dilemma. And that was that here they were, their families were being incarcerated, uh, they were being forced out of their homes on the mainland, um, they were being forced to dispose of their possessions, uh, give them away or sell them for pennies on the dollar. They were having to walk away from their schooling. Their parents were having to close their businesses or walk away from land they had been farming. And yet at the same time, like millions of other young American men, um, many of them uh, wanted to sign up for the military and do something to serve their country. So what were they to do? They Those who went down to the Selective Service Office discovered they weren't allowed to enlist for the military because of their ancestry. They were prohibited from doing so. So there was this common dilemma that young men of that age, uh, Japanese American men faced. And, um, and so I found four whose stories, I think when taken together and woven together, begin to shed some light on, um, on how the different ways that they could deal with that and the kinds of values and virtues that they demonstrated as they moved through the war years. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, th I think it, it, was, it was such a, a wise move because I think about, you know, the crux of the of a lot of the issues that Japanese Americans had to deal with, whether or not military service, resisting, revolved around oftentimes, you know, being in that 18 to, you know, 22 right. time frame. So that's, you know. and, and I should make clear that, you know, I mean, the book is focused on these four young men, but it's really also about their families. Um, their immigrant parents experience coming from Japan and coming either to Hawaii or to the West Coast of the United States and trying to make their lives in this country. So the arc of the story really goes back to their immigrant roots and all the way through the war years and to the repercussions after the war for what, what they experienced during the war. Great. So let, let's start talking about the, the four men. And why don't we bring up the first image of uh, Gordon Hirabayashi. And you know, Gordon uh, was uh, someone who uh, was raised in the Seattle area, so I know his story well. And here he is with, um, you know, at his wedding picture with uh, Esther Schmo. Tell, tell me about Gordon. Yeah, so Gordon is a really interesting young man. He was a, a student at the University of Washington when World War II broke out. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. And um, right after Pearl Harbor, a curfew was imposed on anybody of Japanese ancestry living in Seattle. They had to be off the streets by 8 p.m. 
Gordon was a, a young man who um, lived his life according to principles, very strongly held principles. He didn't think that was right. So he began to deliberately defy the curfew. In fact, he began to document occasions when he was out after 8 p.m. And then when uh, the time came for Japanese Americans in, in Seattle to get on buses and be taken away to these camps, Gordon didn't get on the bus. Instead, he sat down and he wrote a very detailed, well-reasoned statement uh, outlining, laying out why he was defying the curfew and why he was refusing to be incarcerated on sort of broad constitutional grounds, making the arguments that this was illegal and unconstitutional. And he took that statement and he went downtown Seattle and he walked into the FBI offices in Seattle, handed them the statement and turned himself in. And then that began what turned out to be a series of legal battles that worked its way all the way up to the US Supreme Court. Gordon was in and out of uh, jails and prisons uh, throughout the rest of the, the war. But absolutely fascinating young man. Mm. You know, and I love the, the detail uh, in the book that you were able to bring out. And a lot of that came from the oral histories that uh, Densho and other people did. And so we thought it'd be interesting for the audience to actually see some of the primary um, source research that, that Dan did in terms of looking at oral histories. And so we're gonna show an, a, a clip um, of Gordon when he is describing, you know, kind of that moment. I, I, I call it like an epiphany when he said, uh, you know, he, I just have to ask a question, is this right or wrong? And so he's at the um, University of Washington Library studying with some other, you know, white classmates. And there's a 8 p.m. curfew and so it's a few minutes before 8 p.m. So let's let's watch this clip. And then one day, I'm dashing home. Hey, Gordon, it's five to eight. I grab my stuff and it takes about five minutes to get home. So I'm just dashing home, and uh, it hit me. A question that I should have faced earlier just hit me. How come I'm dashing home and all your timekeepers are still there. I didn't, it just needed the question to be raised. I knew I couldn't answer it, you know, uh, without saying I can't do it. I turned around and went back uh, to the library. Hey, what's, what's the matter? And uh, I said, well, you guys are here. You, oh, we got work to do. I said, I got work to do too. Uh, I decided if you guys are here, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work with you. I'll go back when you guys are ready to go. Nobody turned me in, and I didn't take that until it hit me. And when it hit me, I knew, gosh, I can't do it. That's two-faced. So that was that moment where he you know, decided to defy the curfew. A few weeks later, he essentially asked that same question as, you know, as Japanese Americans got the orders to um, you know, be rounded up and be removed. You know, he said the same thing that, you know, that just, you know, you know, you just have to ask a question. It's not right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think it should be noted that there were um, many young men who um, 
resisted the incarceration of their families and themselves. And later when uh, Japanese Americans were drafted, resisted the draft so long as their families were being incarcerated. So um, so Gordon is, is sort of one voice of the resistance. Um, he, he was particularly um, well suited though, I think for inclusion in the book because he uh, lays out his case so clearly and he rests it on such um, fundamental constitutional principles that are pretty hard for anybody to argue with, um, simply for instance, that American citizens should not be incarcerated on the basis of their ethnicity, which seems obvious to us now, but was simply was in fact what happened during the war. So he's, um, he's, he was, he's also just a really, as you know from having talked to him, really interesting guy, a little quirky, but um, absolutely fascinating. And and I think the readers are really going to enjoy his story. No, I, I agree. He is, I mean, he's such a principled uh, person and, and I, in some ways unique because, you know, I remember you, you talked about going to the FBI and he actually thought there were gonna be dozens and dozens of other, you know, people mm -hmm. um, actually opposing at that moment. Right. He, he was pretty unique. He was the only one at that initial moment. But right. as you say later on in the camps, I think many other Japanese Americans are saying this is going too far. Yeah. And then you know the, the opposition came out. Yes. So let's 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 go to the next person. Let's show an image of uh, Katz Miho. Um, so we go from Seattle now to Hawaii. And um, and the, here the story of the Japanese Americans, uh, for me, it was very different. I knew more in terms of the mainland. Tell me Katz Miho and some of the stories of Japanese Americans in Hawaii. Sure, so Katz grew up on, uh, on Maui at a time when Maui, like most of the Hawaiian islands, uh, was run as one, basically one vast sugarcane plantation, sugarcanes and later pineapples. And the plantation system was uh, racially stratified brutal working conditions, particularly for first-generation immigrants from Japan who, who worked under absolutely brutal conditions in the cane field. So Katz grew up um, in that environment. He was actually a student at the University of Hawaii when Pearl Harbor happened though. And he actually witnessed the attack on Pearl Harbor from the roof of his residence hall. And um, because Katz was a member of the ROTC, the Reserve Officer Training Corps, um, when he witnessed the attack on, on the base at Pearl Harbor, he and hundreds of other, mostly Japanese American young men, um, raced to the gymnasium there or the armory and um, assembled. And, and they became, uh, that afternoon, uh, they were formed into something called the Hawaii Territorial Guard. So that night, uh, Katz found himself uh, down on the Honolulu waterfront um, patrolling against what everybody expected would be uh, an invasion of Hawaii by, by Japanese imperial troops. Uh, he later went on uh, uh, to serve in uh, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, but his first service was a very brief service in this Hawaii Territorial Guard. Mm. Yeah, and, and just a note, you know, Japanese American, the Japanese American experience in Hawaii was very different because they were the largest minority group, about a third of the population, right. versus on the mainland, they were in such a, a, a small percentage right. of the population. 
So we're going to show a, a clip of, uh, and I should mention it's, um, you know, his name was Katsugo uh, Miho. We always call him Katz yeah. because that was his nickname. And it's a clip that the University of Hawaii, the Center for Oral History, uh, did of, of uh, Katz Miho. Um, and so let's show the clip of Katz talking about his time with the Hawaii Territorial Guard. Our group of uh, University of Hawaii students were dropped off as guards over a area in the dark uh, on four-hour shifts. And uh, for two, three nights in a row, we were uh, serving as, I don't know what we would have done because we were given a loaded rifle, we were given a loaded rifle with five rounds of ammunition. We didn't even know how to fire the gun. But we were given this rifle, we were told, you load it this way, this is the way how you lock it, in case anything happens. And to this day I wonder, what was if anything happened, was what they were referring to, because, not, not that nothing happened, but what if anything happened, what were we supposed to do, because we were not giving any kind of orders. A month and a half later, Early in the morning, we got called up and said, hey, we're going to report down to Nanakila uh, Intermediate School. And we woke up at about 2 o'clock in the morning. They woke us up at 2 o'clock. And then finally, about 5.30, a truck came by to pick us up. We were all fully packed and everything. We dropped us off at Nanakila. We wondered what was going on. We found out that the whole battalion was uh, assembled at uh, Nanakila. And then Major Frazier, who was the acting commander of the battalion, came up and told us point blank, right in, straight in our face, said, the reason why you are here this morning is because you, all you Americans of Japanese ancestry, I'm pretty sure he referred to it, Americans of Japanese ancestry, because of your ethnic background, you are being discharged herein, right off the bat, right as of now, you are being discharged from the Hawaiian territory. Only the AJs. And we completely stayed in shock. And just watching that, you know, he's, he, he is a good storyteller. You know, just, uh, and I, you know, the first part, I just loved, you know, kind of, you know, his sort of bemused look about the absurdity of, of you know, having these young men untrained with uh, five bullets going out there and guarding to defend against a Japanese invasion. What in case something happens or something. So, but then the ending part though, he, he, he talked about a, um, a I, I call it a scene, you know, kind of an experience that was very difficult for him and the others. Yeah, I mean, these guys, imagine this, you're, you're serving your country and in the pre-dawn darkness, you're assembled on an athletic field in Honolulu and told to your face that you're no longer welcome to serve because of your Japanese ancestry. I mean, there, many of those young men could hear others crying in the darkness that morning. They were so shocked and so disappointed. And Katz, um, Katz was one of those who was extremely disappointed. He, uh, he went back to Maui, his family ran a, a, a small hotel in Maui. So he went back to Maui and, and got a job as a carpenter. But he was so frustrated because he was working as a carpenter on these uh, military bases that were being constructed on Maui um, as the US you know, military presence built up in Hawaii. 
but he wasn't able to actually join and and to serve mm -hmm. until a year later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, at the top of the show, I mentioned how I read this uh, you know, book with my my daughter, and uh, and there were um, that point where you described that that scene at the end. You know, I I got choked up, and I think it 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 you know that was one of probably a dozen places where it really hit me, and and that was that was a powerful scene. So let, let's go now from. Um, and I should mention, um, we first talked about Gordon, um, who, you know, had the courage to stand up to the government. And then we went to Katz, and the other two were members of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. And, and um, we'll talk more about this with the next person, uh, Rudy Tokiwa. So we're going from now Hawaii back to the mainland, down to California. So let's show a picture of, of Rudy. And um, it's a picture of him uh, in uniform. He's in Europe. Uh, Rudy's uh, the one in the front um, where he actually captured um, you know, some German soldiers and officers because I think headquarters said, we need to interrogate some people. So this is a picture of him bringing him in. It's a pretty amazing story that you captured. But tell me about Rudy and, and, and why he's in the story. Yeah, so Rudy, Rudy grew up in, on a farm in Salinas, California. Um, after Pearl Harbor, uh, his family was forced to leave the farm. They were taken first to the um, Salinas Rodeo grounds, and um, which was called an assembly center. And then from there, they were taken to one of these uh, camps in, this one was post the posting camp in Arizona, and the whole family was incarcerated there. Um, Rudy, um, Rudy was one of the young men that uh, there was quite a bit of debate within the post in camp uh, as it were in other camps about what the right thing to do was when Japanese Americans were finally offered an opportunity to serve in the US military. Um, some felt very strongly that they should not serve so long as their families were being incarcerated. Others felt that um, well, perhaps if we serve, we'll earn some respect for Japanese Americans and we'll be treated better when they come back. So Rudy was one of those who um, who decided to to join what became the 442nd. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I love about your writing is you're able to catch, you know, the capture the personality of these individuals. And um, I just want to mention, I mean, Rudy is one of my my favorites. Not not just only in your book, but of the many men I've interviewed, because um, he he has. What's the right word? I mean, he is such a uh, interesting. I mean, you've you, we've talked about kind of like a rascal type of, of yeah. Rudy's Rudy's uh, Rudy's army nickname was Punch Drunk. He, um, he 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 tended to get in fights. Um, he often didn't follow the rules real strictly. He was a real character, um, but he also had just this absolutely huge heart and cared very deeply about. Um, his family and about the other guys he was serving with, and and that really comes through um, in in the histories or the the interviews you did with him. Um, a lot of the clips that um, I watched, a lot of the interviews that I watched that you did with Rudy, I was really deeply moved by by how how he sort of wore his heart on his sleeve, and and you could really feel uh, his emotions. As he talked about the things he had gone through, you know, you we we talk a lot about the, the courage of the the four men that you highlight, and you know, Gordon, and then the three who in the four hundred forty second. Yeah, I want you to talk a little bit uh, 
you know, specifically about the campaign in the Vosges Mountains, because I think it it kind of captures some of the, you know, what the challenges that these men had to face. Yeah, so uh, let me back up just a little and say the 442nd was this all Japanese American, originally all volunteer, all Japanese American um, uh, fighting unit that was um, finally formed in early 1943. As I said earlier, initially Japanese Americans were not allowed to enlist, but in early 1943, the Roosevelt administration reversed course and began to actively recruit um, Japanese Americans. Um, many of them came from Hawaii, others came from the mainland. Some of them like Rudy came, came out of the camps. Um, after basic training, um, the 442nd was sent first to Italy where they fought their way up the Italian uh, boot. Then they were transferred to um, Northern France to an area along the French-German border um, called the Vosges Forest or the Vosges Mountains. And that was a deep, dark, sort of impenetrable uh, series of forested mountains. In October of uh, 1944, uh, the 442nd was given the task of liberating a, a town called Bruyere, which was the important juncture of a railroad line and some highways. And um, it was rainy and cold and miserable. And after several days of very intense fighting, they did in fact liberate this French town. They moved beyond it deeper into the Vosges and liberated a town called Bifontaine and, um, and a town called Belmont. At the end of that, uh, several days of extremely intense fighting, they were given leave to take uh, a night or two to rest in a barn or a shed or wherever they could find. And I just want to mention, and at this point, I mean, not only was it intense fighting, they, they took heavy casualties. I mean, you know, I've, I've talked to some military historians and they said, at this point, they were, they were probably what called what non-effective because they had, they had lost so many, they should have been pulled off the line at this point. They, right, their, their fighting capacity had been greatly uh, degraded um, and their numbers reduced enormously. But in the meantime, something had happened. Um, a general, General Dahlquist, um, had ordered um, units of the 141st uh, Infantry Regiment, which was composed mostly of Texans, actually, and sometimes called the Texas Regiment. Dahlquist had ordered um, these mostly Texas young men um, too far into the Vosges, far, much further into the Vosges forest than he had reconnoitered. And they were cut off, surrounded uh, on all sides, uh, trapped on the end of a ridge line. And uh, many of them were wounded. Uh, some of them died. Uh, some of them had gangrene. They had uh, very little in the way of medical supplies, almost no food, no drinkable water. And over the course of several days, General Dahlquist became more and more desperate to get these guys out of there. Um, so he sent numerous units uh, from the 141st uh, up to try to get through to these guys. None of them were able to do that. So at that point, he awakened uh, the 442nd uh, young men that we'd been talking about who had been given a, a time to rest, but didn't get much time to rest as it turned out. He sent them up the mountain to try to get through to the, to the Texas soldiers that were trapped up on this mountain. And um, as degraded as their fighting force already was, 
they fought through absolutely hellacious conditions, fighting their way up this mountainside over the course of several days, took even more casualties. And um, by the end of that campaign, they did in fact reach the, uh, the Texas unit and get them down off the mountain. But um, there were so few survivors that, um, well, I think we'll show a clip that, uh, that describes it. Uh, the very few of them actually made it back down off the mountain. Yeah, so we're gonna show a clip of uh, Rudy talking about kind of, uh, it's called a retreat parade where Dahlquist, General Dahlquist wanted to address the troops and you know, at full strength, the 442nd um, would be about 4,000 men, you know, four battalions. And on that day, there was less than one battalion left because after Bruyere's, Bifontaine, the rescue lost battalion, and an additional week. I mean, General Dahlquist right. ordered them to keep fighting, yes, even though they, they were devastated. Um, General Dahlquist wanted to address the troops, um, expecting probably you know, more men than he saw. So let's see this clip of Rudy talking about that. The 36th Division commander wanted the 442nd to pass in review. And so, and he said, all personnel of the 442nd will pass in review. So the 442nd passes in review. And like I say, you got three battalions plus, plus headquarters, and they don't even have a battalion out there passing in review. So General Dalquist turned around and he said to the colonel, when I order everyone to pass in review, I mean the cooks and everybody will pass in review. And Chaplain Yamada said, this is the first time I saw the colonel cry. And he said, this is all I have left. Yeah, I think of that, that clip. Um, you know, we, we've talked about Rudy's personality and you know, who he also was. He was a, a pretty tough, tough guy. He was a very tough guy. And I remember when he kind of broke down, got choked up and cried. And, and, and you know, it, that campaign, you know, in some ways broke so many other spirit and, and bodies of so many men. So it was devastating. It, it really was. And I mean, I think I think I told you before, but that clip, when I saw that clip was one of the moments I said, when I when I really decided to write this book, because I got choked up and I showed it to my wife, she got choked up. Um, there was so much heart in that. And um, it was imp it's impossible to look away from it. And you really get a sense by uh, by listening to clips like that of what these guys went through, and and how how tough the fighting was and how much heart they put into it, I should maybe this is a good time to mention that um, because they did uh, rescue what became the lost battalion. Decades later, uh, Governor Conley um, made uh, all the members of the 442nd uh, Regimental Combat Team honorary Texans. Which actually meant a lot to these guys, yeah. um, because of, of what they'd done on that day or those several days. Right, and, and and this is probably a good time to ask you the naming of the book, facing the mountain. You know, where where did that come from? And and, and just you know, a quick thing I didn't mention at the beginning. There's a picture of Mount Rainier behind us. We're in Seattle, and actually, uh, from our house, I have a you know a view of Mount Rainier when I get up. So 
with, but why facing the mountain? Uh, you know, it was uh, actually my wife, uh, Sharon, suggested it. I'm pretty bad with titles, um, but it really clicked with me once she came up with the phrase. There were several several sort of levels and, and layers of meaning to it for me. One just sort of topographical fact is that in Italy and in Northern France, both these guys, they were always fighting their way up the side of some mountain. The Germans always had the high ground. The 442nd American guys were always having to fight uphill into, into the teeth of ferocious fire. So it made sense on, on that level. But more generally, um, to me, what it means is, as I said earlier, you know, on December 6, 1941, um, these Japanese-American uh, families and their Japanese uh, parents were proceeding with their lives in America, trying to reach whatever goals they had for their lives, you know, to make the, the farm successful or to make the business successful or to graduate from UCLA or whatever. On December 7th, 1941, this mountain of problems arose in their path. And they had to get over it or around it some way. And that's really what the book is about, is how through the eyes of these four individuals and their families, how what we can learn more generally about how Japanese Americans navigated the problem of, of getting over that mountain and onto a path beyond it. Yeah, I really, I really like the title. And so let's go to the, the, the fourth man that you highlighted. And let's have a picture of uh, Fred Shiyosaki. Uh, so Fred um, um, is from Spokane, Washington, and you know briefly in terms of some Japanese American history. So the the West Coast, um, um, you know, Washington State's up in the in the on the West Coast, up in the Northwest. Uh, but what the military did was they split Washington into two parts, Western Washington and Eastern Washington. With Western Washington, the Japanese Americans with the majority were rounded up and placed in camps. But Japanese Americans who live in Eastern Washington weren't placed in camps. So talk about Fred and, and his role in the story. Fred, uh, Fred grew up in uh, a neighborhood in Spokane called Hilliard, which was a, kind of a rough neighborhood. It was down by the uh, railroad tracks and it was... Um, a neighborhood mostly of immigrant families from all over the world. And I think partly because of that, a lot of racial slurs got thrown around amongst the kids in Hilliard. Fred was a, a young man who, um, I think he didn't really like to fight. He was essentially a pretty gentle soul. Um, and um, But he would not abide racial slurs. And so he learned to fight. He learned to scrap early on. In fact, he was always coming home with his glasses broken. Um, his family ran a, a laundry and his poor father had to keep buying him new sets of eyeglasses because he was always coming home with uh, his, his glasses broken. Um, but Fred was one of these young men who um, right after Pearl Harbor uh, tried to enlist, went down to the, uh, the recruiting office in Spokane like all the other kids in his high school, young men in his high school and tried to enlist and was told he couldn't. He was told he was in fact an enemy alien, which made no sense to him, of course, because he was an American. Um, so that greatly discouraged him. He spent, um, he spent a year attending Gonzaga uh, University in Spokane, feeling horrible because all the other young men were off to war. He was one of the very, very few uh, young men on the campus that year. 
But a year later, when the 442nd was created, he he signed up um, and uh, served in the 442nd. He was um, one of uh, I, I should have mentioned in reference to Rudy that the the re the um, the effort to rescue the lost battalion was led by uh, K Company and I Company uh, of the 442nd, and those two companies took particularly heavy losses. Rudy and Fred were both members of uh, K Company. So Fred was one of the uh, guys that fought his way up that side of the mountain that day and uh, lost a lot of friends uh, in doing so. So we're gonna show a clip of, of Fred and, and, and Fred is, uh, this is after uh, the war is over. He's returning from Europe, uh, going back to Spokane and you know he's taking the train. He's now in the Washington DC area. So let's, let's show this clip. Uh, we were, I was on the train by myself, and we stopped in Washington, D.C. And uh, I was, you know, from, the, from that railroad station, you could see the Capitol building. I'm, I'm sure that must have been the Union Station. And I was sitting there looking out the window, and this, this G.I. came out of books. I think he's a buck sergeant. And he stopped, and he looked at me, and he looked at my patch, and he says, Hey, you were the 442nd. I said, Yeah, yeah. He says, uh, were you at the Lost Battalion? And I said, yeah, I was there. He says, I was in there. So he was one of the 200 men that you rescued? Yeah, yeah. And, he, and, uh, and uh, you know, I, anyway, it's one of those things. I, 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 I could just feel myself getting really, I was angry. God, and I turned to him and I said, do you know how many men we lost? We lost getting you guys out of there. You know how many of my friends died in there? And. Well, he said, you, don't, you, know, you know, if you guys were in there, we'd have come after you. And uh, I shook my head and I said, well, he said, anyway, I want to thank you, you know. And he put out his hand and I turned away and looked out the window. Yeah, so it was probably one of those Texas guys that came up and, and, and did this. And, and you know, I, when I interviewed Fred about this, um, he told me he, he wasn't really proud of that moment. You know, he... Uh, um, in some ways felt ashamed and he said it was irrational that he wouldn't shake his hand. But again, he talked about how, how angry he was because of, you know, again, just the devastation of seeing so much. Yeah, I mean, the fact is these guys, like a lot of American uh, service members during World War II or any war, he came home with a lot of psychological uh, wounds as well as physical wounds. And uh, it took a long while for some of these guys to work their way through a certain amount of resentment and a certain amount of anger about um, what had happened there. But, um, but, but Fred, you know, one of the things I really like about Fred is that he was, he, unfortunately, Fred just passed away a couple of weeks ago. He was, uh, of the four men who I profile in the book, Fred was the only one who was still alive when I began the project. And I really enjoyed spending time with Fred, getting to know him, sitting across a table from him, because his spirit was, um, was just so positive um, that he clearly had worked through all those issues and um, he had a really positive view of life even when I met him when, and he was well into his 90s at that point. I just, I really came to be very fond of him and to admire him a great deal. Yeah, you know, so a, a quick story. Um, so last week 
um, you know, I, I gave a book to my dad, my 94 year old dad. And, and he actually, even though he has cataracts, he read the book in three days. Really? And, uh, and because he was just captivated. He says, oh, such a patient. And, and even though he lived the experiences, I learned so much. And it was great to see the stories. But after he read it, I, I asked him about Fred Shiyosaki and his feelings because my dad, you know, knew a lot of the veterans. And he said, yeah, there's so many anger and um, issues and others. Um, but he had an interesting experience in Texas I wanted to share. He was a little bit younger, you know, he's 94 today. Um, and so he was training in Texas when the war ended. And it was a few months after the Rescue Lost Battalion. And he was in a store in, I think, the Dallas Fort Worth area. And a woman behind the counter, um, you know, noticed that my dad's um, button was a little loose. And she said, are, are you Japanese American? My dad said, yes. And so she said, you know, please take your jacket off. And and so she actually sewed his button and, and did this. And as, as my dad's telling me, I mean, he's just tearing up because he said, the woman started telling him that, you know, it was either uh, this woman's nephew or, or a cousin that um, was in the lost battalion. Mm. And so she knew what Japanese Americans had done. And so, so my dad was saying, you know, how appreciative, you know, Texans were of this. And so what, but he also understood why Fred was so angry and couldn't um, do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real uh, Texas uh, connection here to this story uh, that I, that I really like. I've, I've heard other anecdotal stories, uh, uh, people from Texas um, going out of their way to honor the 442nd guys. And so I want to remind people that they have questions because I'm going to start diving into some of these questions. And you know, the, the first question uh, comes from a, a Val. And, you know, it's kind of like the, what lessons from these heroes can be applied to our country today, which, you know, you know I embellish this a little bit more because when you were writing this book, um, you know, the last five years, you know, our country was, was going through a lot. And a lot of the things that happened with Japanese Americans you know, I like to say rhymed with some of the current events, you know, things like, you know, the, the Muslim travel ban where Muslims were uh, being denied access to the United States, you know, for national security reasons, which was kind of a similar reason why Japanese Americans were placed in camps for military necessity, they said. And these were, you know, false reasons. Right. Um, the other thing about just detention centers, you know, on the southern border, families were being detained and separated. And again, that was reminiscent of, of Japanese Americans and, and what happened during World War II. And then just the racism in terms of today, the anti-Asian hate and all that. And so you know, combining this with this question, all these things were happening. What lessons, you know, what, what did you take away from this? Yeah, I mean, I had the same experience the entire time I was writing this book. There were these echoes um, between what I was researching and the interviews I was, viewing during the day and I'd go home and watch the, or go to the other room and watch the evening news. And there were all these echoes um, between the history I was reading about and what was, what was happening. Um, I think one of the lessons for me is just that in, in regards, particularly in regards to anti-Asian sentiment, which is, you know, so obviously in the news right now and so important. Um, I thought I knew a lot about anti-Asian rhetoric and sentiment having grown up in California and having always had a lot of Asian friends growing up. And, but I realized in researching this book that there's a lot I didn't know about just how deep and that ran and, and what the history of it was. So when I was doing the research, I was reading about um, 
Chinese immigrants coming to California in the 1850s and encountering lynchings and burnings and being driven out of their, of their homes. And then um, I was reading about this period where this notion of the yellow, yellow peril arose where uh, Asians were equated with rats and locusts and plagues and vermin and illness. Um, and, and then when I was re researching and, and, and thinking about Pearl Harbor, I realized those same images and tropes and ideas were just brought up again. They were already there you know, in American history. They were just recycled and brought up again and used again. And more recently, we've seen them the same again, images and ideas and phrases, associations with disease, for instance, being brought up and hurled against Asians. So I just, I'm, uh, what I'm saying is I, I learned from the experience of writing this book, how deeply embedded um, that sort of systemic um, racism is, even if it seems under the surface most of the time. So when you look at these guys, when you look at this book, what I'm hoping is that um, the lesson people can take is by, reading about these four young men and their families and the things they went through and the sacrifices they made for this country, that that will begin to help, um, you know, put to rest some of these idiotic racist tropes that have developed over the years. If you get to know people on a personal level, which is what I'm trying to do with this book, it's, it's a much harder, um, much harder to hate on them. Yeah, I think that that's a very powerful way of doing it because I think when I think about how I change how I think about things, yeah, I can be very intellectual and think about things, but I think it, it has to come from the heart. Of yeah, it, it just does. the way that, that you feel about things, and I think by you capturing these emotions so powerfully. That's... Well, I mean, that storytelling is can be powerful, and that's certainly what I'm always trying to do with whatever I'm writing about is help people make a personal connection with. Um, some phase of history that they they might not be fully uh, familiar with. So uh, here's a, a question from uh, a John. He says, you know, kicking the Japanese out of the exclusion zone was similar to the Nazis and Christonaut, you know, Christonite. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think I, you know, this might be an interesting question because you actually did draw, because um, I, you know, as we talk about the personal stories, you, you, you did talk about things that made people ponder things. I mean, to think about things. And one is, um, you know, you can answer this, but also I want to bring in the fact that you talked about how members of the 442nd helped liberate a, a death camp in, uh, you know, Nazi Germany. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of, the, one of the ironies that's pretty spectacular in the book. And one of the moments in the book that I think people will find really interesting is that, uh, the field artillery uh, unit of the 442nd um, was amongst the troops that came across the Dachau uh, camp and its subcamps in Bavaria in 1945. And in fact, these Japanese American troops were helping to liberate um, people who had been enslaved in the Dachau uh, camps. And keeping in mind that in for many of them, their own families back home were also living behind barbed wire. Uh, there was this obvious irony that they certainly was not lost on them, I'm sure, and that I think shouldn't be 
lost on history. And I, that brings up something else I wanna mention, which is that in the book, um, I sometimes refer to these camps where Japanese Americans were incarcerated as concentration camps. And I just wanna be very clear, first of all, that I'm not in any way um, equating those with these Nazi extermination camps and slave labor camps. But I think it's important to use honest language when talking about history. And the fact is that when the government uh, incarcerated 100,000 Japanese Americans, they wrapped it up in a lot of language that was very fuzzy and soft. Um, they called these, uh, these camps in the desert um, relocation camps. They were concentration camps. They were designed to concentrate the population of people based on their ethnicity, confine them behind barbed wire, and separate them from the rest of the population. So I think I really think that it's important to use the term that's honest, but also for people to understand that that I'm not equating them with the death camps of the Nazis. Right. No, thank you for that explanation. Um, you know, here's another question, uh, you know, from John. You know, where were the families uh, that were detained ever compensated? So let, let me answer this uh, sure, question yeah. because there's another Texas story here. Um, uh, they, they were in uh, 1988. Uh, Ronald, President Ronald Reagan signed the, um, you know, the Civil Liberties Act which um, offered an apology and uh, compensation, $20,000 for any Japanese American who was incarcerated. And this was called the, the redress movement, uh, the redress bill. The interesting thing is the, um, uh, one of the main sponsors of this bill was uh, at that time, the Speaker of the House, uh, Jim Wright, mm -hmm. who was a Texas Congressman. And, um, and you know, uh, Congressman Wright, or speaker right knew the story of the lost battalion and as a texan he felt there was a, a debt to be repaid so when it started bubbling up you know you know through the community um you know he took a step forward and says you know i want to be part of this so mm -hmm. so it you know they were compensated and there was that that texan kind of um, um connection I, I would just add also that rudy tokiwo was one of the people <laughs> right. who was very uh, involved in the in the redress movement mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, if you read the uh, the afterword in, in your book, there's a, a great little story. There is. And, and, and actually on your website, so I should mention, if you go to the danieljamesbrown.com website, um, you know, the, the clips we showed, we selected from about, I, I think about 15 different clips. Mm -hmm. And so there's many more to, to look at. Um, here's another uh, question. You know, your new book features young men of the same generation as the men of the boys in the boat. How did you come upon the idea and how do the stories compare? And then also uh, she says, is there another generation or group of young adults that interests you for a new project? <laughs> well, let me focus on the similarities um, with between the boys in the boat, the, the young men there and the young men here uh, primarily. I see a lot of similarities. I mean, I think people will first see the dissimilarities um, the one is a book ostensibly about rowing with a bunch of white guys in a boat. Uh, this one's about a bunch of uh, Japanese Americans uh, at war largely. But actually, I see a lot of commonality, um, primarily in the values and the virtues that these young men lived by. And I think they're, they're keep in mind that these young Japanese Americans are another face of what we call the greatest generation. 
and there were certain sort of um, attitudes and values that were prevalent in those days that I think helped both sets of young men overcome the obstacles they had to. Um, they valued um, humility, they valued perseverance, they valued resilience, uh, they valued teamwork and uh, camaraderie and working together. And I really see with, those are very much principal themes in The Boys in the Boat. And I think they're very much principal themes also in this book. So I, I, do, I do think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of common, in common between the two stories. And, and something else in addition to that, that um, I, I liked was, you also talked about, uh, especially at the end, when you're kind of, in some ways, wrapping things up or giving perspective, the importance of the, the immigrants coming in and bringing mm -hmm. their values uh, and their principles and how that you know, strengthens the, the country. Because in many ways, the men that you talked about, you know, they, they also had Japanese values. Yes, and I, 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 I talk in the book about the fact that when, particularly the guys that were going into battle and a battle like the rescue of the Lost Battalion, um, they, they had a lot of traditional American values. They, they knew the ideals they were fighting for. They, they understood what was at stake with Nazism versus democracy. Um, but they also, they had grown up um, in Japanese families with Japanese parents. And so they did bring to that endeavor a lot of Japanese values, particularly about, about warfare. Um, one of the things that was extremely notable in the research I was doing, listening to all these interviews, was that almost universally among the young men that signed up for the 442nd, the last thing their father said before they, they got on the bus or whatever to go off to basic training was um, fight well, do your best, uh, come home uh, unwounded if you can, but whatever you do, don't bring shame on the family, um, which mattered, mattered a lot to these young men, you know, that traditional sort of value of, of the family's honor. Katz Miho and his brother argued all night long about which of them would be able to represent the family by joining the army. Yeah, and, and part of that of not bringing shame, you know, I interviewed them, included that it was more honorable to die on the battlefield Absolutely, yeah. than, than bring shame. Yes, yes, and, and so they went into battle, many of them, um, with that attitude, which is, I think, part of why they became um, one of the most, if not the most decorated uh, unit of its size in American military uh, history. They fought incredibly well. Yeah, so, you know, Dan, we, we went over time okay. and I really enjoyed this. And, and you know, there's still other questions that we just uh, weren't able to get to, but, um, you know, wanted to, you know, again, thank you for this time. I, I, I just, you know, we, we kind of went off script a little bit and started that's, that's talking. Okay. This, that's was, good. this was fun. Uh, so um, at this point, I think someone uh, from yeah. the organization. Yeah. Hello, both of you. And we could have gone a lot longer, to be honest. This was an excellent dis uh, discussion and a very important one. What a time in our history. And I thought those uh, video interviews was, uh, they were a great addition. So thanks so much to both of you. 
And just as a reminder to our audience, uh, if you'd like to order additional copies of Facing the Mountain with a signed book plate, they are available at the DMA store at shopdma.org and the book will ship directly to you at home. Once again, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time this evening. Uh, and thanks to all of our audience for joining us and thanks to Carolyn Bess at the DMA. We're so happy to part with partner uh, with you. So have a great evening. Good night. Good night. Bye. Good night.